Do you ever take these horrible things happening as a sign that God doesn't want you to stay on this path? Oh, no. Oh, no, because I could have died. (laughs) I could have died. I wanted to quit because I couldn't walk. I couldn't knock doors. That was the height of the campaign, you know, but something in me was like, no, push forward. Show the people that you're fighting for them. So even though I lost, I did not quit. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Congresswoman Cori Bush. She's the first Black Lives Matter activist to enter the halls of Congress and a member of the famed progressive squad. We revisit the devastating lows that dot her unconventional path to Capitol Hill. Three and a half, four weeks from my first primary election, I was violently raped. We discuss her metamorphosis from outsider to insider. Also, her unusual take on extreme adversity, how a childhood experience primed her for the campaign trail, and what compelled her to keep trying after two really bad electoral defeats. I went through so much because of failed policy decisions and bad choices and bad leadership. And... I won't allow that to happen to anyone else without a fight. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So let's just start Congresswoman Cori Bush with a little lightning round. Just some very easy, easy breezy questions. Okay? Okay. When will you and Nancy Pelosi become best friends? Do we have to become best friends? I didn't come to Congress to be best friends with anyone. I came to Congress to serve St. Louis 100%. Is power a dirty word? No. No. I don't think it's a dirty word at all. You know, we need power to be able to make things happen for people. The point is, who has the power and how are they wielding it? Will we have a successful Democratic election in 2024? Uh, I hope so. We can do it. We can do it. The work is now. If Whatever we want to see in 2024, we have to be working towards that now. You're optimistic. Absolutely, I'm optimistic. That's how I got here, <laughs> being optimistic. <laughs> but see, being optimistic does not mean just, you know, hoping and wishing and praying. It means that you have to put your feet to the fire. And so that's. Yeah. where it comes from. No, I didn't say Trump. But yeah. Just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Congresswoman Cori Bush has a distinct leadership style. Perhaps more starkly than any other member of the House, she readily shares the personal as political. When we don't act, people who look like me die. As a formerly unhoused person, I have seen firsthand how poverty continues to devastate communities. In the summer of 1994, I was raped, I became pregnant, and I chose to have an abortion. I yield. Bush started her professional career as a preschool teacher. She had her first child in her mid-20s. He was premature, born at just 23 weeks, but he survived. Shortly after the birth of her second child, Bush and her then-husband were evicted. They used McDonald's bathrooms to mix baby formula. 
A few years later, Bush decided to go back to school to become a registered nurse. She landed a job that paid more than $30 an hour with benefits, a huge step up from her previous $10 an hour. Then, on August 9th, 2014, she began yet another career transformation. She became an activist. It happened just after 12 o'clock on Canfield Drive in Ferguson in the midst of an apartment complex. He put his arms up to let them know he was compliant and that he was unarmed, and they shot him twice more, and he fell to the ground and died. A white police officer, Darren Wilson, fatally shot a black teenager, Michael Brown Jr., in Ferguson, Missouri. There is growing outrage tonight after an unarmed African-American teenager was shot and killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson, Missouri. It set off protests. And later, violence. Just last night, young people out on the streets clashed with police who used tear gas and rubber bullets. Cori Bush saw it on TV, the mix of rage and fear, righteous indignation and petty crime. She was 38 years old, a registered nurse working at a mental health clinic just a few miles away in St. Louis. She told her bosses that the clinic should get involved. They agreed to send a mobile unit where Michael Brown Jr. was killed. I was there just a few feet from where Michael Brown Jr., where his body lay for four and a half hours, uh, mostly uncovered, in the hot St. Louis sun. And just a few feet from it, we set up a tent and we started serving that apartment complex where he lost his life uh, because the people there were traumatized, distraught, and they feared it happening again because it was just so out in the open in the middle of the day. Um, But also they watched this young man's body lay on the ground as they as they were home. Looking out their windows, the children saw it. So we had to make sure that people were able to continue to survive um, through that time. And so how did that pivot happen for you from doing grief counseling, emergency aid for people surviving trauma to I'm protesting? So I was there from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. doing the resource work. But I wanted to be there to see how I could help after I was off the clock. And so I decided to stay. I decided, you know, I'm a nurse. I can be here at night making sure that, you know, if people need, you know, medical services, that someone is here. I'm a pastor. I can pray with people. You know, I just felt like there was there was more that I could bring. I thought that that's what I was there for, but it turned into also using my voice. Now I'm seeing people that was standing up to save lives being brutalized themselves. Um, And I was seeing the attacks and the uh, militarized policing happening right in my community. And so I stayed. And then I'm looking at all of these young people. You know, I'm looking at all of these youth standing up, using their voices. And I just felt like I'm not going to go away. I'm watching you get brutalized. I'm watching this. I cannot leave you. I felt like I was leaving my own children. Your responsibility as a parent, as an adult, you felt was to jump into the protesting as well. Absolutely. You are at that point only a few years into a career that was safely and solidly middle class, registered nurse. Nursing school was not handed to you. You had to fight to get yourself there. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> Were you at all afraid, Congresswoman Bush, of losing the security you had built? I mean, you're a woman who came from 
being homeless with children, right? You, you know what poverty is. Were you afraid at all in protesting that I could lose my very middle-class position in life? Not at all. It never once crossed my mind. Huh. Not one time. Uh, one thing that I tell people when they get ready to start nursing school, I tell them no matter what happens, no matter what they put you through, finish. Because once you get your RN, they can't take that from you unless you give it away. So mm. if you want to come at me for standing up using my voice, if you want to come at me for fighting to save black lives, if you want to come at me for being out here, protest is not illegal. So if you want to come at me about that, then I'm ready to come back. But I never felt like I was living a middle class life <laughs> because okay. I still had so many struggles. You know, I was still struggling to pay the rent and to uh, pay bills. I was mm. taking care of two children on my own without child support um, coming in the door. Uh, I was paying for daycare. When you work as a nurse in a hospital, I would get to work at 6 a.m. and I wasn't leaving work oftentimes till 8, you know, p.m. And so you didn't feel you were risking that much? No, mm -mm. not at all. They, <laughs> as, as hard as I had to fight to become a nurse, there was no way, absolutely no way that I was just going to let someone take it from me. Your father feels very differently about the situation. He felt you were actually risking a great deal. You connected me to him. I had the pleasure of speaking with Alderman Bush. Yes. And he talked to me about how he saw you on TV. And that's how he learned about your activism, which he had no idea you were doing. I'm going to play a little bit of what he said. Okay. I got up on my bed that night, tried to see if I could go and rescue my daughter. And police was just everywhere, blocking off every street, everything. I couldn't get to her. Finally, she answered the phone. And, I, and I'm like, Corey, what the hell are you doing? What are you doing? Where are you? Then my second concern was, who, who with you? You know, who's out there with you? And she said, Daddy, I'm out here with a lot of men, a lot of black men. She said, Daddy, I, I ain't scared. <laughs> so I said, I said, let me talk to some of those guys. Let me let me hear their voices, because I wasn't sure she was telling me the truth. And she put them on the phone. And these guys, <laughs> they were like, hey, Mr. Bush, uh, we right here with Corey and uh, we got her. Mr. Bush, we got her. And I said, let me talk to the other guy. And then another voice came on. I said, man, this sounds like the same voice that got off the phone. Yeah, I mean, he he's a dad, you know. He is 100% father, 100% daddy. You know, I still call him daddy um, because he's been that. My dad has been my, my protector. He's been my confidant. He's been an example. So... My dad has watched me go through so many things. He's watched me um, go through abusive relationships. He's watched me come back from sexual assault. Uh, he was there for me when I went to nursing school. And um, so for him, he was fearful that 
all that I had finally got over. I got out of those abusive relationships. I was no longer homeless. I wasn't like I've gone through so much and I was finally getting on my feet and he just didn't want to see um, anything happen. And he was right. He cared about his child. I love the fact that my dad was like, I'm getting up out of my bed and I'm going to go rescue my child. But my dad has also learned that his daughter has a call on her life and a mission that she is destined and determined to fulfill to the very end. And so now he's like, I got you. I see you. You know, go ahead. Mm. I'm right now. I'll be right here. I'm here with you. Mm. And so for the record, your father and I shared the same concern of you've been through so much. What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But that's what it was about. Mm -hmm. You know, all of those things prepared me to be able to then do what I had to do in Ferguson so that I could be here right now fighting for the people the way I am. The first campaign Cori Bush took part in was actually for her father back in the 1980s when he was running for city council and she was a little girl. Errol Bush had Cori join him on the campaign trail, talking to strangers. He was so excited about this and I couldn't understand why do we want to go talk to people we don't know. Um, But this was his charge to me, you know, go knock on the door and he would stand back. And uh, sometimes when people would come to the door, I would literally just turn around and point to him and, you know, my dad, talk to my dad. But I saw how people would respond to him. I didn't know that seeds were being, you know, sown in me that would later blossom into something like this. And what specifically, if you had to look in retrospect, what specifically was being sown in you? What manifested in your heart? Yeah, just first of all, a love for humanity. Just anyone. My dad didn't make a difference. And when he when he hit a door, he didn't like have a different conversation for different people at the doors. He didn't speak differently to people who had, you know, big, beautiful cars in the driveway. Like that wasn't him. And my dad, he would stop. Now, he knew his neighborhood very, very well. If my dad saw someone walking in the community that he didn't know that looked like they may have slept outside that night, um, he would stop and he would ask them, have you eaten? Let me take you up the street to uh, to the store to get you some food. And he would literally put them in the car. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just trying to get to school, Dad. Can we just can you just take me to school? I don't want to be late. Um, and uh, he did that all the time. If he saw a youth walking and he knew that it was during school hours, he would stop and pick them up and say, what's your parents phone number? He would call their parent and say, hey, I'm picking them up and I'm taking them to school or I'm going to get help to connect them to a job. All the time. That was my example. I, I didn't understand it as a child. But now I see because my dad started having those people come back to him and say, hey, Mr. Bush, remember me when I was 16? You helped me get my first job. And this happened when I was this. You helped me and my family get food. And now this and they come back. They have they went back to him with success stories. I saw how one person can make a difference and change someone's life. Your very first campaign, you decide to run for the U.S. Senate. You're prompted to run for office because a fellow protester in Ferguson told you you should really consider it. That said, running for the U.S. Senate as your first elected position is a very aggressive move. (laughs) Yeah, it was. It was. Um, And I'm so glad I did it. I, I, I didn't know what I was in for. 
running on the federal level, I, I knew nothing about. But one thing that I was able to see was by traveling around the state, getting out of St. Louis, I saw that some of the same issues that were issues that I was um, advocating for in St. Louis in an urban you know, area, densely populated in this rural area, they were saying the same things. Also, what I was able to see in going into some of those communities, I was told, no, you can't come here. You know, I, my campaign manager would receive information saying, tell her don't come. We heard she's going to come to this Democratic event. Tell her don't come because this is a sundown town. And if she comes, she may not make it out. And so when I heard that, I was like, oh, oh, look, you got the wrong one because I stood before tanks. <laughs> you know, I stood, you know, <laughs> real bullets and rubber bullets, sir. Don't know. Uh-uh, you got the wrong one. If tell I can survive come, that, <laughs> don't tell me to, not to come. <laughs> yes, I'm coming. And But what I was able to see, though, when I went to those communities and I gave my speeches, I would hear, you know what? Thank you for coming. We've never met a black person before. We only knew what we saw on television, that you're murderers and, and, you know, drug dealers and this and that. We had no idea. So I'm sorry. And thank you for coming here. Missouri is more than 80 percent white. Yeah. Yep, it is. That election, you lost it by a very big margin. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. I think I had 14% of the vote or something like that. Uh-huh. And so the lesson? Uh, the lesson was, first of all, people said that I would get 5% of the vote. You know, they said that people wouldn't talk to me. They said that I wouldn't make any change. But going in those communities, I saw that I was able to make change. And let me say this. One particular speech I gave, um, this this elder white woman came up to me and she grabbed me by the hand and she started to rub the back of my hand. And I I pulled my hand back and I said, what are you doing? And she Mm -hmm. said, I just wanted to see if it rubs off. She wanted to see if the 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 color on my skin rubs off, but it was because she hadn't been exposed. So I was able to expose people to something that, that they didn't know or understand. And now I still have relationships with some of those folks to this day. I was able to go back into those communities, speak in their schools, help to bring about change in those areas. So I saw how one person staying who they are, speaking up and being unafraid, being unapologetic, you know, pushing past their own comfort zone could bring change for other people. And for yourself, did it bring change for yourself? Uh, It helped me to see that there's a a whole world out there that I had not just never thought that I would be a part of, you know, um, just politics. Like maybe this is the lane for me, even though I fought it so hard when my dad was was uh, when I was younger. I would tell my dad, I'll never do that. I'll never go into politics. After the break, Congresswoman Cori Bush discusses how her traumatic experiences are not unique and how that knowledge drives her to action. I feel this constant weeping inside me. 24 hours a day just always feels like crying um, on the inside of me. And that's somebody hurting wherever they are. And I have to do what I can to stop it. This is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. 
we're back speaking with Congresswoman Cori Bush about her path to Capitol Hill. It took three tries to break in, starting with that run for a Senate seat. And as a warning, this next section contains a discussion about rape. Shortly after that first election loss, something horrific happened to you personally. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so three and a half, four weeks from my first primary election, I was violently raped. And um, just from in the community, I was told that it was part of like this retaliation um, for my activism. Um, another protester was murdered that morning and I was mourning his death, the death of Darren Seals. Um, he lost his life that morning and I was grieving. And uh, a few hours later, um, I went to go see a home that was for rent. And when I got there to the property, the person raped me. I was 40 years old <laughs> and had just turned 40. And here I am uh, in this position. I just, I, I couldn't think, I couldn't eat. I couldn't take care of my kids. I, I couldn't work for four months. My rape kit sat on the shelf for four and a half months before it was ever touched. Hmm. Um, I did not get justice. The person was able to get off. Um, you attempted to get justice. I did. I attempted to get justice. Um, the person, he turned himself in um, with his lawyer and he basically said that, oh, it was rough sex. And so he was able to get off with that. Um, and so I went to court four more times to try to get um, an order of protection, at least to get something. And I couldn't even get that. They were unable to serve him after four months. Um, the judge even gave me an extra an extra uh, month to get it done. And um, he was not able to be served. So this person just walked free. Meaning you couldn't get the physical paper served to him. He was evading you. So you couldn't get a protection order. I could not get a protection order. And I even went to the what I was told was the best process server in St. Louis. I paid them to do it. And even that person couldn't do it. Um, he was very sorry, but he said, I just, I can't get it done. So this person was got off. So after four months, uh, a friend of mine, a former um, uh, elected official in St. Louis, uh, Representative um, Bruce Franks Jr., came to me along with some community members and said, hey, we need you to run um, for Congress. We need you to run for the House seat. And I'm like, I'm still in therapy. I, I, you know, I haven't even gone back to work yet. Like, I can't do this. But when I thought about the fact that my rape kit sat on that show for four and a half months, when I thought about what happens to crime victims, when I thought about who speaks up for people who have gone through this and have no voice, like, how does that change happen? Hmm. And so I said, yes. As it was happening, you said that this was a retaliation or it may have been part of a retaliation for your activism. Is that right? Yes. And so it was meant to scare you, to submit you into silence. Right. Yes. And you knew that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I was told the day, the day after it happened. Um, what do you mean? That's what you were told the day after it happened? Yeah. I received some text messages from some, some other activists just saying that, that there was this hit list of people and um, where, you know, to, to try to silence us. 
And um, I was one of the people on that list. And the person said that they couldn't say for sure that that's what it was, but they had heard of this hit list. Um, and so, you know, I carried that with me for the next several months. And when I was asked to run for that house seat, you know, I remembered that. So if this was meant to silence me, if this was meant to stop me, that's how it happens when we allow things to, to shake us in that way. And for people who that feel like that's the best thing for them is to stop, to move back, to do something different, that's fine. That is, you know, I won't come against that because each person has to walk out their own journey. But for me, I couldn't. What, what that did for me was that pushed me harder. And when I thought about uh, how just a few months before Michael Brown was killed in June of uh, 2014, the congressman at that time, there was a vote that he could have taken to demilitarize the police just a couple months before Michael Brown was killed. And instead of supporting police demilitarization, he actually voted in favor of, of uh, militarizing the police. And so when I thought about how like that police force, that aggression, how it hurt the people that were on the ground, how I saw that, how it was a part of that, how it hurt me physically, you know, I, um, I knew. And then it didn't help you when you were a victim. It did not at all. It did. Um, and so to this day, I can remember what my face felt like pressed up against the ground when I was assaulted by some members of law enforcement the night that the announcement came that Darren Wilson would not be indicted on those charges and that he was that the family of Michael Brown Jr. would not see that accountability happen I remember what that feels like even now just sitting here talking with you I and so I carry that with me in Congress I carry with me what it was like to not get justice after um, that assault uh, and so much more Something that, that's really striking me, I'd say even overwhelming me, Congresswoman Bush, is this quality of, let's call it fearlessness, you seem to have. In Ferguson, you're not afraid to protest. Rubber bullets, and they could have been bullets, would be coming at you. Right. In the right. wake of being raped, as you describe you say, I'm going to get up and run for office anyway, again, after a devastating defeat. I don't understand this fearlessness. Where does it come from? How does it work? It's that reminder that somebody will go through what you went through, thinking about my own pain and how just wanting someone to stop my pain and nobody stopping it. Just thinking, okay, I'm not having that same pain at this very moment, but I can stop somebody else from having it. So that is what, that's what compels me. That is what keeps me going. Like I talk about how even now um, I feel this constant weeping inside me like there's just uh, inside of me there just is 24 hours a day just always feels like crying um on the inside of me and that's somebody hurting wherever they are and i have to do what i can to stop it and so the fear for me is people not getting 
help people not getting connected to the resources they need, people not having the change that they need in their lives to be whole. So that is greater than any fear of what has or could happen to me. So much greater. That's interesting. I thought what you were going to say was that the fear for you is getting numb, not feeling anything, which can happen when you have gone through so much. No. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, Yeah. I don't know if that'll ever happen. Um, It gives me that urgency, though. It gives me that push. Uh, So as much as I want to let go of the the trauma that's there, you know, and um, I am a supporter of therapy, but sometimes triggers, triggers are there. This is probably Mm -hmm. one of the most dramatic examples I've ever heard of empathy as fuel. Yeah. um, In those moments when you are feeling pain, when I think about domestic assault and I, I think about the physical pain that I had to endure at the hands of of an abusive partner. Um, Every blow, like what that feels like, what that blow felt like, you know, and then what that pain feels like after it's over with and you have all of this pain all over your body. You can't even remember being hit in that place, you know, but you just feel the pain. Uh, Like every single moment that that pain lasts, I I know that I can do something to stop that. I know I can. I know I can stop it because some of this is about policy decisions. Some of this is about highlighting issues and bringing awareness. And if that is all it takes, how can I be selfish and know this happens and know what it feels like and not want to help someone else? You didn't have that fear of losing whatever you had built. A lot of people do. That's not news to you. You know that. A lot of people have that feeling. What's your advice to them? You have to have your own why. You have to have your own mission. For me, I sat in the place of trying to figure that thing out. And I had to make a decision. Do I go for what's easy or do I go for what I know I'm being compelled to do? So for other people, knowing that you have something to give to this world. And when we feel like I I can't lose what I have to be able to do it, then somebody will miss, somebody won't have, somebody will suffer because you carry something that you were supposed to bring to help change their lives. So how can we, how can you live like that? I can't, I can't because I'm a, I'm a product of people making that decision. I went through so much because of failed policy decisions and bad choices and bad leadership. Um, And I won't allow that to happen to anyone else without a fight. While still healing, Cori Bush decided to run for Congress again, this time for the House of Representatives. In 2018, she took on a man named William Lacey Clay. Cori Bush is taking on longtime incumbent First District Congressman Lacey Clay in the August 7th Democratic primary. He has never lost an election. She has never won one. Clay had served in Congress for nearly 20 years, and his family represented St. Louis for even longer, since the 1960s. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. When Congressman Bill Clay of Missouri stepped down from office, he was succeeded by his son, Lacey Clay. His father founded the Congressional Black Caucus. You could call Clay Jr. a legacy kid. What's your game plan for beating him? (laughs) The game plan was 
you know, I was a regular everyday person from the community that had gone through so much. And I just felt like the representative at the time was disconnected. I felt like if he was okay with that police militarization on our streets, he was someone that we just didn't see. So I felt like the people see me. Like I'm always out in the streets. I'm always showing up at events. I'm always showing up when people call, when people have a need. I wanted to see that happen in Congress. For me, it wasn't like coming against his personality or or trying to disparage his name or come against the legacy of his family. It was just about like, now we need some real change in St. Louis that people can feel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I felt like I could bring that. Because I came from the streets. I was still bleeding from the streets, I felt, in many ways. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus helped to campaign against you. How'd that feel? You know what? Honestly, it didn't bother me. Really, it didn't bother me. And it didn't bother me because the people in my community, the reverence for the Congressional Black Caucus, like I don't hear a lot about, you know, you don't really hear people just on a regular basis or hardly at all talk about the Congressional Black Caucus. And being from the Ferguson uprising, we felt like that was a group who could have done more, like to stand up for us. And and they didn't. So you run in this election and you lose. It was the old guard versus the progressive new guard. Many of you called for change after Ferguson. It does not look like that is happening. You lose in 2018. Yes, I lost and I was hit by a car um, while I was driving just two months before and I was knocked off my feet for about two months. Oh, literally hit by a car. Literally. Yeah. Yes. I had a car accident and couldn't walk. Do you ever take these horrible things happening as a sign that that a higher power, you believe in God, uh, that God doesn't want you to stay on this path? Oh, no. Oh, no, because I could have died. <laughs> I could have died. That car kept trying to ram me. I, I could have died. So, no, it was the fact that I lived and inside me there was still this pull to keep going because I wanted to quit. I, I wanted to quit because I couldn't walk. I couldn't knock doors. That was the height of the campaign, you know, but something in me was like, no, push forward. Show. You got to show the people you know, that you're fighting for them, you know, at all costs. Mm -hmm. And so I did. Mm -hmm. And so even though I lost, I did not quit. I've lived in St. Louis all of my life, and my heart hurts to see our region being represented by career politicians. We should not have to wait another 17 years for change. You decided to run again in 2020. Yes. What was your game plan for winning? Why did you think I can actually win this third time trying? I didn't achieve the mission, so I couldn't stop. Like if you didn't, if you had a mission and you didn't get there, you got to keep going till you get there. That's one. The other thing was my friend had won. You know, when we saw now Representative Ocasio-Cortez, you know, she won her race and she came to St. Louis to help me with mine. I felt like we ran together. If she could do this, you know, I could do it too. And I know my community wanted me to continue on. Arm in arm with our fists in the air. Big upset in Missouri's Democratic primary. Longtime Congressman William Lacey Clay defeated yesterday by progressive challenger Cori Bush. Ready to serve each other. 
until every single one of us is free. So Bush just toppled a 52-year political dynasty. Thank you for electing me as your first black congresswoman here in the state of Missouri. I'd asked your father what he learned about power and politics watching you, because now the tables have turned. All right. Mm. Here's what he said. If you want power, you got to take it. That's what I saw her doing, taking power, because nobody was going to relinquish that to her. The years that I've been in the political world, they always have told me, you got to wait your turn. Uh, You need to pay your dues. Corey kicked all that to the curb. Yeah. Yes. I was told the same thing. Wait your turn. Pay your dues. Um, You got to climb up through the ranks. Yeah, no. No. At what point in your life did you realize that is not true? Like pinpoint it. Was it when you were homeless? Was it when you became a, a nurse? Was it when you had a, a premature baby? I mean, when did you learn that? Uh, actually, it was during Ferguson. It was on the streets of Ferguson when I saw that we were doing the right thing and we were being treated like we were doing the wrong thing. And I saw, though, how around the country mobilization was happening. Legislators were writing bills to work on police transparency and accountability, but not much much was happening in our own state as far as passing that type of legislation. So that's what it was. And I learned that just continuing to use my voice and people don't have to like it, but I'm going to speak truth. And what I saw was that so many others felt the same way. Like, yes, but finally somebody is speaking it and, and, and holding on to it. And so I couldn't let that go. Mm-mm. And my children, my kids, my kids, I want them to live my kids and my kids, kids, whenever that happens, I want them to live a life different than the one that I had to. My lessons from Congresswoman Cori Bush. One, do not ask for permission. Too many authority figures are invested in keeping their authority, not elevating yours. Play your game, not theirs. Two, use empathy as fuel. If you've been hurt and you relate to others who share that pain, let that connection translate to action grounded in collective purpose. Three, get up. If you keep getting knocked down, you could take it as a bad omen, or you could look at the upside. You're not dead yet. So stop the negative self-talk, use the life you've got, and try again. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Hina Shravastava, Justin Bull, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our intern is Sylvia Goodman. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If you liked what you heard, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It'll take you just a second. Go there. Click. It's easy. Or share the episode with a friend. Nothing like word of mouth. Tell me what you think. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Arthi411. 
AARTI411. For exclusive offers, you can sign up for the Art of Power newsletter at wbez.org slash AOP newsletter. All right, see you next week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.